0: Hello and welcome to the Accelerated Culture podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation, and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Hello and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori.
1: And I am Rob. Her the usual. My
0: right-hand man. How's it going?
1: Pretty well, thank you very much. How are you?
0: I'm good. Did you have a good Thanksgiving?
1: Well, I got free food, yeah. So that was a pretty good Thanksgiving in its own right. Yeah. That's all I ask is some free food and a and a star to steer it by. That's all I need.
0: So this week, we are discussing a pivotal album from my high school years, Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails.
1: Oh, this is this is one that was a very big deal to me because at that time I was growing up in Northeastern Ohio in Gun Rack, and this album dropped like a 10 megaton bomb on that area.
0: Yeah, because Trent was from that area, right?
1: Not originally, but we took him. We took him. Okay. We'll take anybody at this point, so...
0: We're talking about the musical genius that is Trent Reznor, and we're going to be going into that in some detail. But, yeah, this was a... God, when I found this album, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say this was life-changing for me. I mean, I was, let's see, 89, 16, and I'd never heard anything like this before. It, like, gave a voice to my... I don't know what the word I'm looking for. I mean, I wanted to say angst, but I think it was more than that.
1: Anger. Gave you voice to your anger. Yeah. Your frustration.
0: Yes. Alienation. Alienation. That's the word I'm looking for. So, I mean, yeah, stereotypical goth teenager. Of course, we didn't have the word goth back then. That didn't come till later. But I was definitely what you would have labeled a goth. So this album really, really spoke to me.
1: I got this in the most unusual way there were basically two record stores in gun rack. there was the one at the mall camelot music and there was this little shop named la records that this guy named steve used to run and steve was a hair metal fan so whenever he would get promos of lps in that he was like this isn't hair metal i don't care about this he would put them out for one dollar So my first copy of Pretty Hate Machine came to me courtesy of L.A. Records for one stinking dollar.
0: And you still have that, don't you?
1: I still have that copy. It is still in pristine shape. And wow, what a dollar well spent that was. At that time, I was 20. I was in college in Gun Rack. And that album just hit the college alternative scene like a 10-ton sledge. It was huge, huge, huge. You could not escape it. And I, again, I like you, I had never really heard anything like it. I had heard some dabblings in bits of industrial from some friends of mine who were way more hardcore alternative than most people I knew. But it was never anything that really connected to me because at that point, industrial was not exceptionally melodic, which is what my ears took more to. This was a mix of melody and industrial that really ended up putting that whole genre on the scene for the quote-unquote mainstream to find.
0: Yeah, I think it really made industrial a lot more accessible to people. Uh, Actually, Pitchfork Magazine named Pretty Hate Machine number seven in its list of the 33 best industrial albums of all time. They wrote, it blends External sources of rage and angst from the government to the capitalist class to traitorous lovers into one big catharsis with still blistering self-hatred thrown in for good measure. Now, man, if that doesn't describe my teen years, I don't know what does.
1: I described everybody's teen years who wasn't popular.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right on that.
1: Trust me, I'm right on this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was working at a record store. There was a locked glass case where they kept the rap music. Now, of course, back then I didn't realize just how incredibly racist that is. They claimed it was because it had a high shrink rate. But they didn't know where to put this album, and so it was in the locked rap music case. And I argued vociferously with the manager, Brenda, why it should not be there. It was a little bit slower to catch on where I grew up in the suburbs. Uh, honestly, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I think I was probably one of the first people to really glom on to it and turned on a lot of my friends to it. And it was really just was kind of a slow burn. And as it started to catch on and more and more people started listening to it. And then I started seeing people with like, you know, nin shirts and hats and stuff like that. But it, it really took a while for it to catch on.
1: Did your manager keep Steve Lawrence in the R&B, too? I'm just curious. (laughs) Yeah, that album's hot.
0: (laughs) She was usually pretty up on things, but I don't know. I mean, and I guess if you were basing it on only one song, you might think it was rap music. And I'm sure we'll talk about that song when we get to it. But let's talk a little bit about Pretty Hate Machine, Rob.
1: Well, pretty hate machine all begins with Trent Reznor, of course. Now, Trent was not originally from Cleveland. He was actually born in a town called Newcastle, Pennsylvania, back in 1965. I've been to Newcastle, by the way. It's a nice place. Nice little industrial town with some actually pretty cozy little restaurants down there. I spent the night there one time. It was very nice. So if anybody from Newcastle's listening, good on your city. I like you guys. But he didn't grow up there. He actually ended up growing up in nearby Mercer, Pennsylvania,
0: Interestingly enough, Trent was raised by his grandmother after his parents divorced. So it's not hard to imagine where the seeds of some of this anger and alienation came from. He was also an avid gamer. And in
1: 1983, he enrolled in Allegheny College. He was actually going to pursue a computer career. But he dropped out after one year and decided, I'm going to pursue a music career. And that's when he moved to the Cleveland area.
0: And taught himself computer programming before he went to college at, uh, at I can't say it, a- Allegheny? Is that how you say it?
1: Allegheny. Allegheny. Allegheny.
0: At Allegheny College. Okay. And he discovered that you could use computers to make music. And that really, really excited him. He recalled, quote, the excitement on hearing a Human League track and thinking, that's all machines, there's no drummer. That was my calling.
1: So the first band he was ever in, in the Cleveland area, was called The Urge. They were a cover band for a bunch of new wave things. And that was a good start for him, you know, to get his chops for the stage and everything. After that, petered out for him. He joined a band called The Innocent which actually had former members of Donnie Irish and the Cruisers within their lineup. Donnie Iris, you probably know best for his songs like "Alia" and Love is Like a Rock, if you know him at all. He was also from Pennsylvania, by the way. But after their first album release, he left the band, and that was that. He then joined a local band called Exotic Birds, who I actually saw on my 21st birthday. Thank you very much. Ta-da! But he was not there at that time. But he joined Exotic Birds, did keyboard work for them, and he also did keyboard work for another Cleveland band called Slam Bamboo, who did a couple local TV appearances, and supposedly, according to the local press, was ready to make it in the big time. They did not. Oh, just a side note between you and me. One of the members of Exotic Birds actually went on to become the drummer for Stabbing Westward later. So,
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: So while living in Cleveland, he had a job as a janitor at a studio called Right Track Studio, which unfortunately no longer exists. And the manager there absolutely loved him, said he was great at everything he did. He was the most concentrated employee he'd ever had. When that guy waxed the floor, it shined. You know, everything he did was perfect. So Trent approached him about using unused studio time to start messing with his own tracks maybe recording some of his own stuff and the manager agreed to it because all it cost him was a little wear on his tape heads and that is the origin of where this album starts he ended up choosing the name Nine Inch Nails simply because it abbreviated easily to NIN more than any other reason
0: well that's interesting because There was a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors. I mean, nine-inch nails being industrial nails, that was the most common explanation that we heard. There was also a rumor going around, which is absolutely not true, that they were the nails used to crucify Jesus were nine inches. But obviously that's not correct. But that was the rumor that was going around in high school.
1: Ah, back before the Internet, when you had to make up your own crap.
0: I know, I know. But, uh, you know... (laughs) If 9-inch nails are, in fact, industrial nails, it does, does fit.
1: And with that, let's move into Pretty Hate Machine itself.
0: Okay. So he had very little money, 23 years old, holed himself up in a room in Cleveland with a Mac Plus computer and Opcode's Studio Vision MIDI sequencing software, three keyboards, a cheap sampler, and a four-track cassette recorder. Now, his intent was to record some demos that he could then sell to other bands. That was his original intent. I guess when he started off, he was trying to imitate The Clash, but he felt that he didn't really have anything very political to say. So he went into his personal journals and he realized that a lot of what he had in his journals was basically song lyrics anyway. He had to kind of get over this idea of it it being personal and not letting other people know it became something that then he had you know by its nature had to share with the world but when he was playing the demos for people he couldn't be in the room with them I think it was because it was so personal to him I think he didn't want to see their reaction so he would leave the room and let people listen to the demo and uh overwhelmingly the feedback was very positive. They loved it. So based on the strength of these demos, he signed a contract with
1: TVT Records.
0: He's a really bizarre choice.
1: <laughs> TVT at that time was basically known for releasing novelty records and like TV themes and jingles and collections of like things like that, like little television bits that you remembered from ads and, and theme songs. And now they have this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, what what a bizarre choice. It seems like there are so many other labels he could have gone with. I mean, he would have been right at home at Wax Tracks here in Chicago, for example. It just, it just seems so bizarre to me.
1: What I read was that he ended up going with TVT because they offered him almost full creative control.
0: What? But
1: yeah but yeah and something you said about him like leaving the room because it was so personal to him I'm imagining that to a certain degree is what led to him also recording this album mostly by himself I know that he tried to record with other musicians and they just couldn't get the feel or emotion of what he wanted so he ended up pulling a prince on sign of the times and just recording the whole bloody album by himself for the most part
0: yeah i was only able to find the name of one musician that actually played on one of the songs which we'll talk about when we get to it so we talk a lot about punk and the do-it-yourself ethos but this is i think the first time that i can think of that we had somebody that took that and computerized it And I think it was his love of computers and synths and technology that enabled him to do this. I think he was one of the first people to really, really put together his own album in this way without the backing of a label at the time.
1: No, two absolutely brilliant albums came out in this year that were almost entirely based on samples. Paul's Boutique by Beastie Boys was one of them, and this was absolutely the other one. There's almost not a single sound on this album other than the instruments Reznor plays himself that isn't swiped or taken from somewhere else and just twisted beyond recognition.
0: Yes, especially the drums. From what I understand, nearly every drum beat on this album was sampled off of another song. So he did get signed on TVT and it was anything but a match made in heaven, right? They promised him creative control didn't end up actually being that way. There was a lot of friction, a lot of conflict. I imagine we'll talk during the course of the songs about what some of that conflict was and how he eventually got out of his contract with TVT because that's an interesting story in and of itself.
1: Yeah, the original demos that TVT liked, by the time they finished, TVT was not happy at all. There's a quote here from one of the five producers on the album I have. This is from John Fryer. And he said, We were trying to make the hardest record we could make. It was very strange because we made it. We thought it sounded brilliant. We had it on the big speakers just blowing us away. Then someone from the record company came in, and because the demos were more synthy and not as industrial as the album, he listened to it, and his mouth dropped open, and he said, You've ruined this record. Wrong!
0: Wow! Yeah, Where? yeah. So the album did come out on October. I've lost the date. The 20th. album did come out on uh, yes, October twentieth, nineteen eighty nine. And like I said, it was really kind of a slow burn. It didn't really catch on at first. I'm not aware. Did the album chart at all, Rob?
1: Yeah, I think so. um If I remember correctly, I want to say it went like it got to like seventy five. Or
0: yep, you got it seventy five. Nice. Did you do that from memory?
1: I, I had seen it the other day when I was looking up stuff, so yeah, kind yeah. of.
0: I think this album is probably more notable for everything that came after because Trent went on to influence so many musicians that came after, not just the industrial scene, but also I think the synth pop scene. And then eventually he went on to be an Oscar-winning composer for movie soundtracks.
1: Two-time Oscar-winning composer.
0: Oh yeah,
1: I love that. When I was doing the research, some of the influences that he cited for making this album were, first of all, Devo, another northeastern Ohio legend, the Human League, who you mentioned earlier, and specifically Depeche Mode's "Black Celebration" album was a huge influence on this album. Wow! I also want—you have to give credit to the cover, by the way, it was designed by a guy named Gary Talpas that's a bunch of turbine blades that have been stretched out to kind of look like a rib cage. And then that weird eighties color scheme thrown in for good measure.
0: And the, the album artwork was lost when they were doing the reissue. They wanted to update it and they couldn't find it anywhere. So maybe somewhere it's in a warehouse or something.
1: They had to actually reverse engineer the whole thing. So,
0: yep. I actually thought it looked like nails, like a claws that's what i always thought it looked like
1: it just looked industrial to me and i was in and i guess it was it's a turbine so. yeah
0: right right okay shall we start listening to the tracks
1: all right well let's start you off with track one and track one was the one that really kicked the door down as the second single off the album but we'll talk about that in a minute track one is called head like a hole
0: Well, we have just listened to Head Like a Hole, and that is probably the hardest song on the album. It's definitely the most rock and roll metal type song out of all of
1: them. I'm surprised this was actually not the debut single, but it was instead the second single. It was not released until March of 1990. There were some real gaps in between the singles on this album. That should tell you something about the longevity of this album at the time
0: some of the songs that he wrote, he spent a lot of time on, but had like a hole came out really, really quickly. He banged this one out in an afternoon. He said, uh, this was one of those songs that just kind of fell out. And he said, it was also starting to become clear to him. He said, um, it was starting to get clear that the record label we signed with was not our friend. I think that kind of all worked into the mix. CVT again there was a lot of conflict they hated this song they absolutely hated it so Trent had one of the producers you mentioned Keith LeBlanc remix it and quote turn up the aggression and that's the version that made it to the album but I mean it's hard not to hear the lyrics and think of the anger that he was feeling towards his record company God money I'll do anything for you Just tell me what you want me to. That's how he perceived the record company. The record company was pursuing dollars and didn't really care so much about his artistic vision.
1: What year did you say that was from that interview? Which one? The one you just read. I didn't. You didn't? It's either
0: 2017 or 2019. I think it's 2017.
1: I find it interesting. I do find it interesting because in 2005, in another interview with Kerrang!, he told them, I don't remember what I was thinking about at the time, but it was pretty much about yelling at a beast without putting a face to it. I wrote it at the last minute as a throwaway. The rest of Pretty Hate Machine was already written, and we'd revised everything else about nine times. Up until then, songwriting had been a meticulous and agonizing process, but this took me 15 minutes in my bedroom. The fact that it produced this huge reaction really pissed me off because I hadn't agonized over it.
0: Well... Maybe not in that sense, but it sounds like there was definitely some other agony that was leading up to it with his record label. But I mean it's really hard to hear him singing, I'd rather die than give you control and not think he's talking about T V T.
1: There's a possibility that when he gave that interview in two thousand five, who knows he may not have been allowed to say anything. There may have been repercussions and consequences if he said something at that time.
0: Oh, that could be. And what year did T V T go bankrupt?
1: 1911 uh, 18
0: oh okay good very yeah. precise I have um, no idea no, because because <laughs> when they finally did go bankrupt he did not mince words at all He he was thrilled he said it was good news for artists so you know interestingly enough I never realized there's only four guitar notes that are distorted to hell and played over and over I don't know where he sampled the guitar notes from but I did find there is a Samburu warriors initiation from Kenya that has all of the tribal chants and grunts and and stuff that it kind of formed the backbone of this song. So that was really an interesting choice for sampling.
1: There's no question about the longevity. This record was 30 years old when it was actually rewritten and used in an episode of black mirror for the fifth season sung by miley cyrus as her character ashley O. they completely rewrote the lyrics with charlie brooker the producer and writer of black mirror and all of this was approved by reznor which is very rare and it was called on a roll but that's how long had like a hole it's stuck in the public consciousness
0: Oh, okay. So as you mentioned, Rob, this was the second single from Pretty Hate Machine, and you mentioned it was released in March, March 22nd, 1990. So this was considered Halo 3. So Trent has this kind of interesting system of indexing all of his releases. I thought maybe it was kind of based on factory records, but actually, no, it was Depeche Mode. I guess they had a similar system, and they were called... Bong, yeah. So, yeah, the album Pretty Hate Machine was considered Halo 2, his second release. The single Had Like a Hole was Halo 3. We'll talk about Halo 1 in a few minutes here. But that's very interesting. And, I, Rob, I know when you and I were getting together to listen to this, I was cursing and swearing because most of this stuff, actually, most of the MP3s were from my ex-husband. And he had everything indexed, not by album name, but by Halo number. So I have all these folders, Halo 1, Halo 2, Halo 15, Halo 20, trying to figure out what's in each folder, and it made perfect sense to him, I'm sure, but it was kind of maddening for me.
1: Imagine if you sorted your Depeche Mode collection by bong.
0: Do you often sort things by bong, Rob?
1: I sort my bong collection by Depeche Mode titles. It's a weird thing I do. Hey, I'm feeling kind of rough today. Let's get out, shake the disease, and smoke it. No, I got, I got nothing else here.
0: Okay, all right. So track two is called Terrible Lie. Let's listen.
2: With this animosity I think you owe me a great
0: You know, one of the themes that keeps coming back on this album is, I think, disillusionment with organized religion. And this is a really, really good example of it. Hey, God, why are you doing this to me? Am I not living up to what I'm supposed to be? And again, oh, my gosh, a little baby 16-year-old Lori had never heard this kind of Blasphemy, sacrilege, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah I, you know, in, in, a, in a song lyric before, I was raised in my parents' religion and was really finding a lot more inconsistencies and issues with it. It didn't give me any kind of satisfaction. So hearing somebody else voicing this, I was just like, holy crap. You know, this is exactly how I'm feeling.
1: This is just Trent simply putting God on blast. For creating a world where everything can be so beautiful and so miserable at the same time hey god i really don't know what you mean seems like salvation comes only in our dreams now if that isn't a you're not keeping your promise type of line i don't know what is
0: right hey god i think you owe me a great big apology it's sacrilegious it's blasphemous it's beautiful
1: the, the synth noises on this one are just over the top, fantastic. Yeah. I absolutely love them. And I know part of it comes from, I guess, he was beating on some wood blocks or something, and once again, twisted and altered and gated and filtered it until it became this strange sounding whoopy noise towards the end there, which I love the end of this song, where the keyboards just kind of, or whatever you whatever the hell that is. I don't know. It could be anything. Just, plopping away, just beating you in the face. I love that.
0: Yeah, so you're talking about that kind of thing right after the false ending there where it kind of fades out and then, yes, it just kind of hits you over the head with that sound. And then I understand, he also said in an interview, every drum fill on Terrible Lie is lifted intact from somewhere. There are six other songs playing through that cut, recorded on tape, in and out, depending on where they work. So, I mean, he really took this whole idea of remixed culture to a new level here. All of the drums are sampled from somewhere else.
1: Not bad for a thought, beaten up old Macintosh. Right? Ah, uh, we're going to move on to track three. Hold on, everybody, because now that we're at track three, we're down in it. we never <laughs> Here is your debut single. Here's your Halo 1 right here. This is your first single released about a month before the album, September 15th, 1989.
0: This was the first song that I ever heard. I remember seeing this video late at night on MTV. I mean, it must have been like midnight, 1 a.m. I had never seen anything like it. I had never heard anything like it. I I had to find out everything I could about this band. I just became obsessed immediately.
1: I imagine it helped that the video was set in your town of Chicago.
0: Yes. And, you know, I didn't even realize that until we were preparing for this podcast. So it was filmed in the Fulton River Warehouse District, which now is very gentrified and is a lot of trendy restaurants where you can get $800 Wagyu beef steaks. But uh, that
1: Wagyu is a Pokemon, right? You ate Pokemon. uh That is mean. (laughs) Do they have squirtle soup? I'm just curious. Not the mock squirtle. The real squirtle soup.
0: Sounds disgusting. Why are you like this?
1: Because you're down in it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's cut the video since we've already started talking about the video. Then we'll talk about the song. But I also didn't realize that the FBI got involved when they were filming this video.
1: By sheer accident, mind you.
0: Well, yes, but it's it's kind of funny. So basically the video is scenes of Trent being chased by these other two guys that look like they're going to rough him up or something. He's, you know, going through the warehouse district. He's climbing upstairs, you know, he's up on top of a building and he either falls or jumps, depending on your interpretation. But the directors of the video, Eric Zimmerman and Benjamin Stokes, had a camera on a large helium balloon that's how they were getting the aerial shots of trent lying on the ground and it was tethered to some ropes they were hoping that it wouldn't go anywhere so they've got trent lying there they used cornstarch as makeup to make it look like it he had decayed a little bit they actually did a decent job with it all things considered but the balloon got away it made it almost 200 miles to a farmer's field in michigan with the camera and the film the farmer took a look at the film and thought oh my gosh this is a snuff film this is evidence of a murder and turned it over to the fbi so then the fbi were looking at this video and trent had said in an interview they had pathologists looking at the body saying yeah he's rotting and that was the cornstarch he's been decomposing for three weeks they thought it was like some kind of gang hit or something with the other two guys walking away in the video. So they actually had to confirm that Trent was still alive. I think there was an episode of like Inside Edition or something like that where they were talking about this and Trent wasn't. Hard too copy. With it was hard copy. It was hard copy.
1: Hard copy.
0: How completely ridiculous. And of course, you know, having taken a number of film production classes in college i could see something like that happening to one of my classmates but still it's like really you know he's been decomposing for three weeks okay and i think that actually the end of that video might have been banned i don't even think mtv played the end of that video and you're nodding yes
1: that is correct all scenes that depicted trent's body were deleted from the video for mtv
0: after all of that yeah so now let's talk about the song. So, you know, I mentioned that at the record store that I worked in Aurora, Illinois, this was locked in the rap case. And I I do remember playing this song for my boyfriend at the time, and he got pissed off and said, this is rap music. Now, ironically, he ended up becoming a big fan. It is, but it isn't. You know, I mean, I guess the spoken word kind of stuff is a rap, but then you've got all these elements of industrial... I don't know I don't know how to explain. It, again, I just heard this and I just knew that that this was something completely fresh and different. It was completely unlike anything that was being played on the radio at the time. And those lyrics, everything I never liked about you is kind of seeping into me. Oh, I love that.
1: When you look at the lyrics, it's easy to see where they came from because in a 1994 radio broadcast he apparently said it was about a relationship that had recently ended for him with some woman named Chrissy. And here's my one theory. I I can really try to fathom when I was looking up all the information for this show, I could not find one reference to where the title of the album came from. I think Chrissy is the pretty hate machine. The The pretty girl that just loathes you. She's a pretty hate machine. That's what she does. Oh wow. And maybe it's not Chrissy specifically but some girl out there is the pretty hate machine. I can tell you that much. And shame on you and thank you too because we wouldn't have this album if you weren't so horrible.
0: Well, then that provides us a very nice segue into the next song which is called Sanctified.
2: What a sheep touches spill
0: I got to say, I think this is the sexiest song on the album. Just that, oh, that bass, it just gets me.
1: We love our bass.
0: But with the bass, you know, he could have just sampled something and repeated it on loop over and over. He had the software for it, but he doesn't do that. And there are at least two places in the song where you can hear, one place there's like a flat note, And then there's another place where it's just ever so slightly off the tempo. I like that because it makes it human. It makes it real. It reminds me of, there were like some ancient cultures where when people were weaving tapestries or blankets, they would deliberately put in one mistake because they didn't want to anger the gods. They didn't want to create something that was so perfect that it would be compared to the gods and they would be, you know, struck down. And I that's what I think of whenever I hear the bass in this song. It's like it almost seems like it's a deliberate mistake. I don't know if it is or not. I'm just completely speculating here. But I like the imperfections.
1: Well, this whole this whole album is is very much about how human beings are flawed, so why should this be any different? Why shouldn't there be a flaw in something that's so much about flaws in humanity.
0: Rob, you actually found some interesting research on the samples on this one.
1: Well, at least one of them. Uh, the 2010 remaster, when it came out, actually excised one of the samples that is used in this song. It comes in a little past the three-minute mark or so. It is a very low-in-the-mix sample of some dialogue from Midnight Express. I, mean, I believe it's mostly in the left channel more than the right But when they remastered it, for whatever reason, whether it was copyrights or something else, that sample was eliminated.
0: And, you know, that's so interesting, because as many times as I've heard this, I heard the voice in the left channel. It never registered to me what it was I was hearing. But it was that part from Midnight Express, Dear Mom and Dad, this is the hardest letter I've ever had to write. And then he's got the samples of the Gregorian chant behind it. And this predates Enigma by at least a year, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does. Well, Enigma's first album itself tells you what year it came out in 1990. Oh, that's true.
0: That's true. That's true. The guitar part, though, is not sampled. It is played by Richard Patrick, who would later become a full-fledged member of Nine Inch Nails. And it is the only non-distorted guitar on the album.
1: Is this the same Richard Patrick who was a member of Filter for a while?
0: Oh, it might be. I don't know.
1: Robert Patrick's brother? I don't know. Well, I'll write that.
0: <laughs> Look it up. So, to me, I always thought this song was about a relationship. Apparently, Trent said it was a song about a relationship with a crack pipe. I don't know. I, I, I this, this feels like it's a relationship with a woman. When she says, come inside, I'll come inside for her.
1: I can see the crack thing to a certain degree. I'm just caught up in another of her spells. She's turning me into someone else. Every day I hope and pray this will end, but when can I do it all again? You want to shake it, but it calls.
0: Yeah, but that could also be a bad relationship with a person, though, couldn't it? I mean, it could be either. It could be a metaphor.
1: It could be chocolate for all you know, but clearly there's something going on
0: here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And whatever it is, it's definitely a love hate relationship. It's definitely a a an abusive relationship. But damn, if he doesn't make it sound sexy, I still dream of lips I never should have kissed. Crack pipe. Oh, that is not a crack pipe.
1: Man says it's a crack pipe. It's a crack pipe. You go tell him he's wrong.
0: I was going to say he didn't really spiral into the drug addiction until a little bit later.
1: Those hits on the chorus after every word justified, purified, sanctified. I love those big hits on the chorus.
0: It's almost like electricity, isn't it?
1: It is. It's like a shock to the system.
0: Yes. It just kind of punctuates everything.
1: We are at the end of side one already. And I know that because I own the vine. And track five this is a thing of beauty. It is called Something I Can Never Have.
2: Still recall the taste
1: This is just gorgeous, just utterly gorgeous, ethereal. And considering John Fryer produced it, who had also worked with people like the Cocteau Twins and Clan of Zymox, there's no question why it has that ethereal feel to it. He's very good with that.
0: It's haunting. Uh, it, it, It is a haunting song. So you mentioned John Fryer. And he was really big on the 4AD record label. And he did a lot of work with This Mortal Coil, which was one of Evo's like side projects with 4AD. And apparently, some of the musical elements in this song were from backing tracks that were intended for This Mortal Coil, but that were never used. And apparently, they were used by quote-unquote accident but they decided to keep them in. Now I don't know how you accidentally use a sample from something, but it works. I mean, uh, Trent and John both felt that they really, really worked well in this track.
1: As somebody who has fiddled a little bit in professional studios, when you were looking at a studio mixing board and there are like roughly 917,000 levers staring you in the face, I can see where you might accidentally bring something into the mix. If you move the wrong lever up on the wrong track, it can happen. I've worked with two channels and and screwed up. So,
0: Okay. All right. So you mentioned Clan of Zymox. They covered this song. They actually did a pretty good cover of it. I mean, nothing will ever reach the original. The lyrics on this one, I know this one and the previous one, Uh, Both came... They were some of his earliest songs, and they came from his personal journals. This is one where if you just saw these lyrics written on the page, it sounds like just a poem that a 16-year-old would write, just bad teen angst poetry. It's just so simplistic. But then when you put it to music with those breathy, whispery lyrics that he does it becomes something just absolutely incredible and absolutely amazing. And you can hear, you can hear it in his voice, you know,
1: when we were listening and we were discussing this and yeah, I agree with you that the lyrics are simplistic, but at the same point, I don't think they have to be anything more than that in this particular case because everybody's felt this pain. Everybody's felt that loss damn it it hurts and that's all you need to know and that's why i think the lyrics work here as simple as they are add that to his vocal performance where you can just hear the aching in his voice the the almost agonizing pleading in his voice that's what brings us to a, a really higher level also the first song on the album to use a profanity
0: oh yeah some of the lyrics of this are really good though i mean i don't want to sound like i'm dissing his lyrics my favorite dreams of you still wash ashore scraping through my head till i don't want to sleep anymore that is beautiful
1: now the odd thing for those of you who own this album if you have the the lyric sheets in there there are actually some lyrics listed on the lyric sheet that are not in the song itself they're only listed on the lyric sheet that happens a couple times on this album actually And in this particular case, right at the end, there's a verse that says, Think I know what you meant that night on my bed. Still picking at this scab, I wish you were dead. Your sweat and Perry Ellis just stains on my sheets. That is in the lyrics, in the booklet, but not within the song itself.
0: Wow. Very specific. Perry Ellis.
1: Wonder if Chrissy wore Perry Ellis. Okay. Welcome to Side B.
0: Yeah, so we have now flipped the album, or in my case, the cassette over. And the first song on the second side is called Kinda I Want To.
1: a cassette how great!
0: oh i loved my cassettes i didn't get my first cd player until boy till 90 actually and we'll talk about that album the first album i ever got on cd when we get to 1990
1: oh honey i still got six drawers of cassettes in there so
0: so kinda i want to rob
1: oh do you
0: what is what do you think
1: I like this one. I I mean I don't think I don't think there's a bad song on this album. There's there's songs that are lesser compared to others, but it's like the Indiana Jones trilogy. Temple of Doom is my third place because somebody's got to come in last, not because it's bad. And I I, I don't think it's a bad song on here, but I I oh I I like this one. I think more than Reznor does because he's sworn he's not going to play alive anymore. Although uh-huh. with Trent, anything subject to change, of course, but. He says he's always been unsatisfied with it and he thinks it's by far the worst song he's ever done. But I really, I really like this one. I enjoy this one. I, I get, again, I it. it's, it's all about temptation and Lord knows which among us have not experienced temptation.
0: That line, maybe God will cover up his eyes. And again, we're getting back to that idea of religion and sin, which is a recurring theme on this album. I, I yeah, I would say this is one of the weaker tracks again it's not it's not bad but it's not one of my go-to songs off of this album you know what i mean
1: no i wouldn't go to it no that's not like i would not like you know i go straight to it or anything there's at least four or five songs on here i would put ahead of this yeah probably more actually
0: kinda i want to i mean look either you do or you don't trent it's no kinda
1: well just because you want to do it doesn't mean you're gonna do it you just I don't want to do
0: it. No, yeah. I mean that seems like it's kind of waffling a little bit.
1: Oh, it's kind of waffling, is it?
0: Mm. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess I do say that a lot, don't I? I guess I use that word kind of a lot, so I guess I shouldn't talk. Burn. But maybe just for tonight, we can pretend it's all right. What's the price I pay? I don't care what they say. I want to. So that's how, it, it. at the end, it changes. The kinda is gone at the end. It's like, just emphatically, I want to.
1: The decision has been made. Temptation wins.
0: Yes. Oh, samples on this one are really kind of nifty. So the samples, uh, drums from the song Good Old Music by Funkadelic.
1: Hell yeah.
0: Yes, a guitar riff from Let the Jingle Bells Rock by Sweet T. Some rhythmic elements from A Surf MC New Year by Surf MC. And I actually think also it's sampling. It's it's down in it. I, it was like, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to sample from one song in the album for the other? I mean, I don't know if that's actually technically a sample if they're on the same album. But this is kind of down in it part two, isn't it? I mean, it, it follows the same kind of structure. And I think you were the one that pointed it out
1: well he can't exactly sue himself for plagiarism i suppose
0: well that's true that's true but i mean it's rhythmically sonically it's it's a very similar kind of sound like those two really just kind of fit together you know
1: i'm just i'm still so kind of surprised that this was notably hard to write for him i yeah there's so much more complexity in some of these songs that i'm really kind of surprised that he struggled with this so much
0: oh i see i didn't realize
1: Well, that's why we're here. We're here to learn.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So speaking of the theme of God and sin, do you want to take the next one?
1: Yes. Speaking of that, track seven makes it pretty clear where he's going. It's just entitled Sin. (laughs) <laughs>
2: what was
0: that
1: sin is good sin works mm. everybody sin this was the third and final single and it was not released until almost a year after the album was released it was not released until october 10th of 1990
0: yeah i wonder what that was about
1: that was head like a hole holding on to the public consciousness for a long time is what that is
0: oh yeah I didn't realize until very recently that some of the lyrics from this song are actually taken from a Clive Barker short story called In the Hills, the Cities. So that line, stale incense, old sweat and lies, that's completely Clive Barker. I had no idea.
1: Which is interesting because it's used much differently in this song compared to the Barker reference, which he uses to describe old European churches. I don't think that's where Trent's going in this song.
0: Right, right, right. But
1: I can see why something used to describe old churches would work its way into a song called Sin.
0: I'm not really sure. Again, I think we're kind of coming down to this abusive relationship. It comes down to this, your kiss, your fist, and the string. I know when you and I... We're talking about this. You thought that maybe it was a little bit more metaphorical, but I took it very literally. You know, the, a fist is, you know, I mean, that's physical abuse. This was clearly an abusive relationship.
1: And yet he's going back to it.
0: Isn't that always the case, Brown?
1: Your need for me has been replaced. And if I can't have everything, well, then just give me a taste.
0: Desperation.
1: Loneliness. Yes. And Horny. Oh, good old Horny, I think, is is in play here, too. So
0: Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, you can't talk about sin without lust, right?
1: Well, it is one of the big seven.
0: This is, I think, one of their better-known early songs. I did find the sample. So at the very beginning of this song, there's this... It's actually a, a, a distorted vocal sample. It's from a song called Change the Beats by Beside. And it's actually a, a voice saying... This stuff is really fresh. But the way that he sampled it is just like... It it becomes kind of like the the backing beat that kind of comes in at the beginning of this song. And I remember my high school boyfriend at the time, the first time I played it, he, he said, This sounds just like a ski lift. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, this sounds... And of course, I mean, I've never been skiing in my life. But it's just really interesting how he transformed this vocal sample into like this kind of swishy rhythm. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not making sense.
1: I don't know what ski lifts sound like from action movies. I've no can't break my hip at my age. Right? No skiing. Cross country, maybe downhill. (laughs) No,
0: no, No, I'll leave that
1: to the, I'll leave that to the athletes and the spies.
0: I'll, I'll stay in the ski lodge by the fire, drinking a hot chocolate. All right. Anything else about sin?
1: Let me check my notes. No, my lo- my notes were pretty light. You know, it's fun. I think Roser is a lot more closed mouth than you would have thought. I I like you had some some difficulty finding information. So
0: yeah. Oh, the B side for the single was fantastic.
1: Oh yeah, I guess we should mention the B side. It was a cover of Queen's "Get Down Make Love," and uh, produced by. I'll let you have that because I know you were excited to find out.
0: Yeah. Uh, Hypolux and Hermes Pan. And I was really surprised to learn that Hypolux was actually Al Jorgensen. And okay, Chicago girl growing up with wax tracks and every album that I had had produced by Hypolux and Hermes Pan on it. And I had no idea that that was one of Al's aliases. So, yes, I'm really late to the party, you guys. Don't at me and tell me you know how slow i am i already know
1: it doesn't matter how late to the party we are it only matters that we showed up
0: is that what we're going with
1: that's what i'm going with
0: okay all right
1: you know it was a common misconception back in the day that this album was a wax tracks album
0: it would have fit perfectly on the label though it would have perfectly been a wax tracks i mean that's why i don't get this tvt thing you know
1: At least they didn't make him do their catalog of songs.
0: Oh, my God. That would have been awful.
1: Yeah. You you don't want to hear Trent Reznor doing, like, the theme to Silver Spoons or something like that. Or maybe you do. I don't know. But you're a weirdo. And uh, at me. Anyway. As as
0: (laughs) As long as we're talking about the conflict with TVT, though, I mean, this is as good a place as any to discuss it. He actually got Jimmy Iovine to buy him out of his contract. That's how he only did the one album on TVT. So then the next album, Broken, went with Jimmy Iovine's label, which Trent had described as kind of trading one master for another. You know, the song Happiness and Slavery on Broken, I think could be alluding to to that situation. He wasn't any happier with Jimmy Iovine than he was with TVT. But I just thought that was interesting that he would have such a big name step in and help him get out of his contract like that.
1: That move to Interscope is what ultimately made him able to form Nothing Records.
0: Oh, that's true. That's true. So that brings us now to the next song, That's What I Get.
2: Just when everything was making sense Guess I'm not the only boy for you. That's what I get. That's what I get. That's what I get. That's what I.
0: So structurally, this one's really interesting. It's very different. It doesn't really follow the same structure of the other songs. This one starts really big, and then it just kind of almost fades into nothing, doesn't it?
1: Well, it was not originally intended to be on the album from my research. It was supposed to be a B-side originally, and it ended up on the album anyway, even though it really didn't lyrically fit in with the rest of the album, in Trent Reznor's opinion.
0: He said that he'd run out of arrangement ideas, didn't he? So they just put on some loops. And as opposed to the percussion being kind of pieced together from like a bunch of different sources, like some of the other songs, this was apparently one loop that John Fryer had. And he said it was a loop that he had from something else, and it worked. That John had apparently 600 discs of weird things that Trent had never heard of. This is another one that it seems like it's about I don't know if these songs are about the same relationship or if these are about many different relationships, but man, uh, he was really pouring his heart and soul into these lyrics. Wasn't he? How could you turn me into this just after you taught me how to kiss you? No, I mean, it's just, it's really very heartfelt, isn't it?
1: I'll be honest with you. This is probably my least favorite song on the album.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Because everything else on here is, is angry and and almost nihilistic in its manner and sacrilegious and this just kind of takes this side exit into full-blown self-pity and that doesn't strike me as befitting on an album called pretty hate machine
0: well i mean the longing really comes through doesn't it and you know what the anger and the hatred seems to be turned inward on this one even just the title that's what i get you know this is something that i deserve
1: uh, just after after the 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 beautiful longing of something I can never have that uh, this this just feels unnecessary to a degree for me. Again, I don't think it's a bad song. It's just my least favorite on the album.
0: Okay, that's fair. That's fair.
1: But, oh, thank you for allowing me my opinion. You're, you're a blessed soul.
0: No, I, I I like this one better than some of the other ones, but you know that's that's all good.
1: It's okay we don't match on the worst track on the album, but it, it's really nice when we match on the best track like we did last time with Technique. So.
0: Oh, so we'll see if we do this time. We um, see. What's the next song? What's the next song?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's track 9 and this is called The Only Time. I'm drunk
2: but right now I'm so in love with you and I'm doing about what
1: Now the first thing I love about this song is the almost funk element with that slap bass when he comes playing him. I absolutely love that bass line in this song. That there's a thank you for Prince in the liner notes, and it's probably just for the sample, but this bass line, this is funky. I like this.
0: It probably is a fusion of different sounds, isn't it? Different uh, different musical influences. I don't know. The the lyrics are a little bit weird. Eventually it gets good. But, you know, starting off the song, I'm drunk. And right now I'm so in love with you. But the devil wants to fuck me in the back of his car.
1: That doesn't count, by the way, because it's a lyric. She didn't say it
0: with a swear jar. You mean?
1: Yeah. No. Sorry, guys. We're 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 going for no quarters this week.
0: But, yeah, isn't that interesting, though? Maybe I'm all messed up. Maybe I'm all messed up in you.
1: I have been this drunk drunk guy. (laughs) I have. (laughs) I have been this drunk guy, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, this person's got his head all turned around, right?
1: The devil wasn't waiting for me in my car, but I have been this drunk.
0: (laughs) Okay. I really like, there's some very heavy drum sounds in this. I really like that. This has got, like, some really good heavy rhythms to it
1: the lyrics i know you mentioned like you know the beginning but the end well i want to drink it up and swim in it until i drown my moral standing is lying down
0: actually it's i want to wrap it up and swim in it
1: oh wow i've got different lyrics here and i printed these out from the bloody nine inch nail site
0: those lyrics were from i think either a demo version he changed the lyrics it's actually i want to wrap it up and swim in it till i drown
1: well, either way, it gets to my moral standing is lying down. and That's clever. That's drunk to me. <laughs> that
0: That's a very, very clever word slay there. I do like that line. So.
1: And it's it's pretty much just straight up about sex. Even Reznor said so, apparently, on a live VHS set that has never been released on DVD called Closure... When they're doing the song live, Reznor just walks up to the mic and says, this is a song about fucking. That doesn't count either. That's a quote.
0: I, you could probably say that about most of his songs, though.
1: You could probably say that about most songs. <laughs> Let's yeah, be honest. that's
0: probably true. I mean, if we talk about the origins <laughs> of rock and roll, right? But that's another episode for another day.
1: We also have one more case of lyrics appearing in the booklet that do not appear within the song. The last line that appears in the lyric sheets is, I can't help thinking Christ never had it like this. But those words appear nowhere in the recording itself.
0: I kind of wonder if that wasn't like some kind of fuck you to the PMRC or something, throwing all that stuff in the in the lyrics.
1: Uh, I'm looking at the lyrics and uh, other than maybe the devil wanting him in the car, I, yeah, I don't think Jesus ever had it like this. I got to be honest with you. I don't see Jesus slammed at the bar going, "Hey, she looks good." So.
0: Well, I mean if you think of it as a religious experience, rapture,
1: depends on the girl.
0: Well. Shall so we so we do the last song.
1: Let's do it. Let's do it. Let us let us wrap this bad boy up so we can get to the beauty of talking about how great it is.
0: <laughs> okay. The final track is called Ring Singer. First things first, samples. I love that this samples had a dad from Jane's Addiction, which we just talked about a few weeks ago. So it's still fresh in everybody's memory. And also Alphabet Street by Prince. I guess that's kind of the rhythm in the the second half of the song, right? Isn't that where that is from?
1: That is where that is from.
0: Trent had said that they were trying to get as many loops playing at the same time as possible in that part of the song. He said they got to about 12 when they ran out of channels. In their mixer. So they actually hit the upper limit of whatever technology they were using. What is this song about? Is this song about a marriage proposal?
1: It's a good question. This song has been very, very changed since its origins. It was originally called Twist and had very different lyrics on the chorus. Okay. Yeah, To me, it kind of does. It feels like a very roundabout marriage proposal. Like, if I'm going... To do all these things for you, this is the one thing I ask of you. Hence, the chorus then being "ring finger, not twist."
0: Okay, I and mean, now you got me curious what the original lyrics were. But uh, yeah, promise carved in stone. That's that's uh, a, a diamond, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I get everything I want when I get part of you. It does sound very much. It's like the most twisted possible proposal but it does indeed sound like one the thing is that the the funny thing about that is considering how much of this album is about breakup and loneliness this this is so weird to, to pop in at the very end here yeah again i like the song a lot but
0: it does feel kind of out of place, but then that whole instrumental, like, dancey breakdown at the end, I think, is a great way to end the album. And the way it just kind of fades out, and then you just have, like, a, a few, what is it, like, a guitar sample at the very end? That's a really good way to end the album, I think.
1: Oh, yeah, great song. It just, it yeah, again, it feels kind of strange and out of place lyrically compared to the rest, but not even so much as that's what I get here. It, it's, it's almost a demand instead of a proposal.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And, but it's not self-effacing or pitying in, in any way, shape or form. Even when he starts off with, you know, you got me working so hard lately, working my hands until they bleed. If I was twice the man I could be, I'd still be half of what you need. And still he wants this. So yeah, it it just feels very almost demanding. Like, I'm giving you, you give back.
2: Yeah,
0: I think that's a good way to look at it.
1: Oh, and for the third time in this album, there are lyrics in the booklet that are not in the song. The final four lines, I'm so tired I can't get to sleep, and the squeaking of the bed is right in time with the song that's repeating in my head. I just want you to know, when I do it, I only think of you
0: kind of disappointed that that's not in the song, actually. I don't know how that would work, but I'd like to hear it.
1: It almost sounds like it's a complete reversal. It almost sounds like he's cheating on her or something. I don't know. Oh. I want you to know when I do it, I only think of you. So where are you? So. Right. That's why I'm wondering if after all that, these final four lines are kind of just like A kick in the tease.
0: Undoing everything, breaking the spell. Interesting. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the album. And again, I cannot overstate just how completely life-changing this album was for me when I heard it in 89. I mean, it really gave voice to everything that I was feeling as an alienated teenager. You know what I mean? Questioning authority, questioning religion... Uh, feeling just devastated by relationships. I mean, as devastated as you can be when you're 16. I mean, let's face it, we thought it was the end of the world back then, and now it's like, now we know what we know. It's like, uh, that was nothing, right? But, um, I mean, this this album was just, God, I mean, I, I wore my cassette out. It It just, it was, it gave me something to cling to, you know, that I felt a little bit less alone.
1: No, I completely get that. This, like I said, you know, growing up where I was growing up, this just was like a bomb dropping on that area of Ohio. And almost everybody I knew in college had this album. And it was good that you had something that gave voice to that anger and that frustration with things around you that you couldn't necessarily voice yourself at the time without being branded some kind of, weirdo or some kind of like bad seed or something this was this was your outlet right this was your outlet Trent screaming it for you and i'm also very impressed that word of mouth is one of the biggest things back before we even had the internet word of mouth just drove this album all across the country
0: it really did yeah
1: and that's i don't think you know it still happens but not the way it used to and for something to go by word of mouth that hard to the point where he, it went it finally did end up going gold i think the first year was out for something to travel like that when we didn't have the means to make it travel that easily that is astounding and tells you something about the longevity and the impact of this album it's a very important thing and i'm so glad we did it
0: and you know in 89 90 if you knew who Nine Inch Nails were, if you knew who Trent Reznor was, it was like membership in a secret club. Other people who were in the know, you know, and then there were a lot of people that weren't. I remember meeting some guy at a Naked Ray Gun concert and he opens up his wallet and he's got a picture of Trent Reznor in his wallet and I'm like, oh, I I recognize that. He goes, yeah, that's God. It was like initiation into this, you know, secret club. It was where the cool kids were. Not that I was a cool kid in, in 1989. I definitely wasn't, but...
1: By making Reznor your god, aren't you making him everything he's railing against?
0: There's a certain irony to that, isn't there?
1: Well, we love to pump irony on this show.
0: We do. So, you've already talked about what your least favorite track is on the album. What is your favorite track?
1: This is a hard one. I'm, I'm not going to lie. This thing is just chock full of so much goodness. I think, honestly, when it comes right down to it, it's Terrible Lie. Really? I just love something about the power behind Terrible Lie, that kind of universal anger, yelling at a god that clearly has let you down, and just, oh, the sounds and everything about it. I think that's, yeah, just, I love just the punch in the face of Terrible Lie. I really do.
0: Okay. All right. And poor Vu? I'm going to go with something I can never have. And what is it? Ha ha. Very funny. Um, but no, it's uh, it's just emotionally so powerful. And then that piano, it just hits me like in the feels. You know what I mean? And it was really used to really good effect in the movie Natural Born Killers. And I know that Trent did the score for Natural Born Killers. And I know there's like an extended version of this song that was released with with the film. But... It just, it's just so perfect. It just captures everything that was going on between Mickey and Mallory at that point in the film, where they're they're coming apart. They're coming apart at the seams. The relationship is completely frayed. And, I mean, even without that association, though, I mean, this song is just, it's just so powerful. It's so the longing is just, it's there. You know what I mean? So that that would be my my favorite. What are we doing next?
1: Ah, coming up in a few more weeks for you folks we are going to stay here in 1989 we could stay in 1989 till summer if we really wanted to there are so many landmark albums this year but next time around we are going to go with the seeds of love by tears for fears an absolute monumental epic of an album four years in the making
0: I'm looking forward to that one. And actually, I don't know all of the songs on that album, so I'm going to have to brush up and and give it a listen before then. But that should be really good.
1: It is is a hell of a thing. I think you're going to enjoy listening to it. The orchestration on that album is just beautiful beyond words.
0: All right. Well, everybody out there, thank you for listening and taking this uh, dark tour down memory lane in 1989 with us. It's a goodbye from me
1: and it's a goodbye for me. Everybody, until next time, be sure to drink your Ovaltine.